0: Chapter 5 of The Economic Consequences of the Peace by John Maynard Keynes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Graham Macmillan. Chapter 5 Reparation Part 1 Undertakings given prior to the peace negotiations. The categories of damage in respect of which the Allies were entitled to ask for reparation are governed by the relevant passages in President Wilson's Fourteen Points of January 8, 1918 as modified by the Allied governments in their qualifying note, the text of which the President formally communicated to the German government as the basis of peace on November 5, 1918. These passages have been quoted in full at the beginning of Chapter 4. That is to say, quote, Compensation will be made by Germany for all damage done to the civilian population of the Allies and to their property by the aggression of Germany by land, by sea, and from the air, unquote. The limiting quality of this sentence is reinforced by the passage in the President's speech before Congress on February eleventh, nineteen eighteen, the terms of this speech being an express part of the contract with the enemy, that there shall be no contributions and no punitive damages. It has sometimes been argued that the preamble to paragraph nineteen of the armistice terms, to the effect that any future claims and demands of the Allies and the United States of America remain unaffected, wiped out all precedent conditions and left the Allies free to make whatever demands they chose, but it is not possible to maintain that this casual protective phrase to which no one at the time attached any particular importance did away with all the formal communications which passed between the president and the german government as to the basis of the terms of peace during the days preceding the armistice abolished the fourteen points and converted the german acceptance of the armistice terms into unconditional surrender so far as it affects the financial clauses it is merely the usual phrase of the draughtsman who, about to rehearse a list of certain claims, wishes to guard himself from the implication that such a list is exhaustive. In any case, this contention is disposed of by the Allied reply to the German observations on the first draft of the treaty, where it is admitted that the terms of the reparation chapter must be governed by the President's note of November 5th. Assuming, then, that the terms of this note are binding, we are left to elucidate the precise force of the phrase "...all damage done to the civilian population of the Allies and to their property by the aggression of Germany by land, by sea, and from the air." Few sentences in history have given so much work to the sophists and to the lawyers, as we shall see in the next section of this chapter, as this apparently simple and unambiguous statement. Some have not scrupled to argue that it covers the entire cost of the war. For, they point out, the entire cost of the war has to be met by taxation, and such taxation is quote, damaging to the civilian population. Unquote. They admit that the phrase is cumbrous, and that it would have been simpler to have said all loss and expenditure of whatever description. And they allow that the apparent emphasis of damage to the persons and property of civilians is unfortunate. But errors of draftsmanship should not, in their opinion, shut off the allies from the rights inherent in victors. But there are not only the limitations of the phrase in its natural meaning and the emphasis on civilian damages as distinct from military expenditure generally. It must also be remembered that the context of the term is in elucidation of the meaning of the term restoration in President's 14 points. The 14 points provide for damage in invaded territory, Belgium, France, Romania, Serbia, and Montenegro, Italy being unaccountably omitted, but they do not cover losses at sea by submarine bombardments from the sea as at scarborough or damage done by air raids it was to repair these omissions which involved losses to the life and property of civilians not really distinguishable in kind from those affected in occupied territory that the supreme council of the allies in paris proposed to president wilson their qualifications at that time the last days of october 1918 I do not believe that any responsible statesman had in mind the exaction from Germany of an indemnity for the general costs of the war. They sought only to make it clear, a point of considerable importance to Great Britain, that reparation for damage done to non-combatants and their property was not limited to invaded territory, as it would have been by the 14 points, unqualified, but applied equally to all such damage, whether by land, by sea, or from the air. It was only at a later stage that a general popular demand for an indemnity covering the full costs of the war made it politically desirable to practice dishonesty and to try to discover in the written word what was not there. What damages, then, can be claimed from the enemy on a strict interpretation of our engagements? In the case of the United Kingdom, the bill would cover the following items. a damage to civilian life and property by the acts of an enemy government, including damage by air raids, naval bombardments, submarine warfare, and mines. b. Compensation for improper treatment of interned civilians. It would not include the general costs of the war, or, for example, indirect damage due to loss of trade. The French claim would include, as well as items corresponding to the above, c. Damage done to the property and persons of civilians in the war area, and by aerial warfare behind the enemy lines d compensation for loot of food raw materials livestock machinery household effects timber and the like by the enemy governments or their nationals in territory occupied by them e repayment of fines and requisitions levied by the enemy governments or their officers on french municipalities or nationals f compensation to french nationals deported or compelled to do forced labor in addition to the above there is a further item of more doubtful character namely g the expenses of the relief commission in providing necessary food and clothing to maintain the civilian french population in the enemy occupied districts the belgium claim would include similar items if it were argued that in the case of belgium something more nearly resembling an indemnity for general war costs can be justified this could only be on the ground of the breach of international law involved in the invasion of belgium Whereas, as we have seen, the 14 points include no special demands on this ground. As the cost of Belgium relief under G, as well as your general war costs, has been met already by advances from the British, French, and United States governments, Belgium would presumably employ any repayment of them, by Germany, in part discharge of her debt to these governments, so that any such demands are in effect, in addition to the claims of the three lending governments the claims of the other allies would be compiled on similar lines. But in their case, the question arises more acutely how far Germany can be made contingently liable for damage done, not by herself, but by her co-belligerents, Austria-Hungary, Bulgaria, and Turkey. This is one of the many questions to which the 14 points gave no clear answer. On the one hand, they cover explicitly in point 11 damage done to Romania, Serbia, and Montenegro without qualification as to the nationality of the troops inflicting the damage on the other hand the note of the allies speaks of german aggression when it might have spoken of the aggression of germany and her allies on a strict and literal interpretation i doubt if claims lie against germany for damage done for example by the turks to the suez canal or by austrian submarines in the adriatic but it is a case where if the allies wish to strain a point they could impose contingent liability on Germany without running seriously contrary to the general intention of their engagements. As between the Allies themselves, the case is quite different. It would be an act of gross unfairness and infidelity if France and Great Britain were to take what Germany could pay and leave Italy and Serbia to get what they could out of the remains of Austria-Hungary. As amongst the Allies themselves, it is clear that assets should be pooled and shared out in proportion to aggregate claims. In this event, and if my estimate is accepted, as given below, that Germany's capacity to pay will be exhausted by the direct and legitimate claims which the Allies hold against her, the question of her contingent liability for her Allies becomes academic. Prudent and honorable statesmanship would therefore have given her the benefit of the doubt, and claimed against her nothing but the damage she had herself caused. What, on the above basis of claims, would the aggregate demand amount to? No figures exist on which to base any scientific or exact estimates and I give my own guess for what it is worth, prefacing it with the following observations. The amount of the material damage done in the invaded districts has been the subject of enormous, if natural, exaggeration. A journey through the devastated areas of France is impressive to the eye and the imagination beyond description. During the winter of 1918 to 1919, before nature had cast over the scene her ameliorating mantle THE HORROR AND DESOLATION OF WAR WAS MADE VISIBLE TO SIGHT ON AN EXTRAORDINARY SCALE OF BLASTED GRANDEUR. THE COMPLETENESS OF THE DESTRUCTION WAS EVIDENT. FOR MILE AFTER MILE, NOTHING WAS LEFT. NO BUILDING WAS HABITABLE, AND NO FIELD FIT FOR THE PLOW. THE SAMENESS WAS ALSO STRIKING. ONE DEVASTATED AREA WAS EXACTLY LIKE ANOTHER. A HEAP OF RUBBLE, A MORASS OF SHELL HOLES, AND A TANGLE OF WIRE. The amount of human labor which would be required to restore such a countryside seemed incalculable, and to the returned traveler any number of millions of dollars was inadequate to express in matter the destruction thus impressed upon his spirit. Some governments, for a variety of intelligible reasons, have not been ashamed to exploit these feelings a little. Popular sentiment is most at fault, I think, in the case of Belgium. In any event, Belgium is a small country and in its case the actual area of devastation is a small proportion of the whole. The first onrush of the Germans in 1914 did some damage locally. After that the battle line in Belgium did not sway backwards and forwards as in France over a deep belt of country. It was practically stationary, and hostilities were confined to a small corner of the country, much of which in recent times was backward, poor, and sleepy, and did not include the active industry of the country, There remains some injury in the small flooded area, the deliberate damage done by the retreating Germans to buildings, plant, and transport, and the loot of machinery, cattle, and other movable property. But Brussels, Antwerp, and even Ostend are substantially intact, and the great bulk of the land, which is Belgium's chief wealth, is nearly as well cultivated as before. The traveler by motor can pass through and from end to end of the devastated area of Belgium almost before he knows it whereas the destruction in France is on a different kind of scale altogether. Industrially, the loot has been serious and for the moment paralyzing, but the actual money cost of replacing machinery mounts up slowly, and a few tens of millions would have covered the value of every machine of every possible description that Belgium ever possessed. Besides, the cold statistician must not overlook the fact that the Belgian people possess the instinct of individual self-protection unusually well-developed, and the great mass of German banknotes held in the country at the date of the armistice shows that certain classes of them at least found a way, in spite of all the severities and barbarities of German rule, to profit at the expense of the invader. Belgium claims against Germany, such as I have seen, amounting to a sum in excess of the total estimated pre-war wealth of the whole country, are simply irresponsible. It will help to guide our ideas to quote the official survey of Belgium wealth, published in 1913 by the finance ministry of belgium which was as follows land 1.32 billion dollars buildings 1.175 billion dollars personal wealth 2.725 billion cash 85 million furniture 0.6 billion total 5.9 billion dollars this total yields an average of 780 dollars per inhabitant which dr stamp the highest authority on the subject is disposed to consider as prima facie too low although he does not accept certain much higher estimates lately current the corresponding wealth per head to take belgium's immediate neighbours being eight hundred and thirty five dollars for holland one thousand two hundred and twenty dollars for germany and one thousand five hundred and fifteen dollars for france a total of seven point five billion dollars giving an average of about a thousand dollars per head would however be fairly liberal The official estimate of land and buildings is likely to be more accurate than the rest. On the other hand, allowance has to be made for the increased costs of construction. Having regard to all of these considerations, I do not put the money value of the actual physical loss of Belgian property by destruction and loot above 750 million dollars as a maximum, and while I hesitate to put yet lower an estimate which differs so widely from those generally current, I shall be surprised if it proves possible to substantiate claims even to this amount. Claims in respect of levies, fines, requisitions, and so forth, might possibly amount to a further $500 million. If the sums advanced to Belgium by her allies for the general cost of the war are to be included, a sum of about one billion two hundred and fifty thousand dollars has to be added, which includes the cost of relief, bringing the total to $2.5 billion. The destruction in France was on an altogether more significant scale not only as regards the length of the battle line, but also on account of the immensely deeper area of country over which the battle swayed from time to time. It is a popular delusion to think of Belgium as the principal victim of the war. It will turn out, I believe, that taking account of casualties, loss of property, and burden of future debt, Belgium has made the least relative sacrifice of all the belligerents, except the United States. Of the Allies, Serbia's sufferings and loss have been proportionately the greatest, and after Serbia, France... France in all essentials was just as much the victim of German ambition as was Belgium, and France's entry into the war was just as unavoidable. France, in my judgment, in spite of her policy at the peace conference, a policy largely traceable to her sufferings, has the greatest claims on our generosity. The special position occupied by Belgium in the popular mind is due, of course, to the fact that in 1914 her sacrifice was by far the greatest of any of the Allies. But after 1914 she played a minor role. Consequently, by the end of 1918, her relative sacrifices, apart from those sufferings from invasion which cannot be measured in money, had fallen behind, and in some respects they were not even as great, for example, as Australia's. I say this with no wish to evade the obligations toward Belgium, under which the pronouncements of our responsible statesmen at many different dates have certainly laid us. Great Britain ought not to seek any payment at all from Germany for herself until the just claims of Belgium have been fully satisfied but this is no reason why we, or they, should not tell the truth about the amount. While the French claims are immensely greater, here too there has been excessive exaggeration, as responsible French statisticians have themselves pointed out. Not above 10% of the area of France was effectively occupied by the enemy, and not above 4% lay within the area of substantial devastation. Of the 60 French towns having a population exceeding 35,000, only two were destroyed, Reims, Population one hundred and fifteen thousand, and Saint Quentin fifty five thousand. Three others were occupied, Lille, Robet, and Douai, and suffered from loot of machinery and other property, but were not substantially injured otherwise. Amiens, Calais, Dunkirk, and Boulogne suffered secondary damage by bombardment and from the air, but the value of Calais and Boulogne must have been increased by the new works of various kinds erected for the use of the British army. The Annuaire Statistique de la France, 1917, values the entire house property of France at $11.9 billion, 59.5 million francs. An estimate current in France of $4 billion, 20 million francs, for the destruction of house property alone is therefore obviously wide of the mark. $600 million at pre-war prices, or say $1.25 at the present time, is much nearer the right figure. Estimates of the value of the land of France, apart from buildings, vary from 12.4 billion to 15.58 billion, so that it would be extravagant to put the damage on this head as high as 500 million dollars. Farm capital for the whole of France has not been put by responsible authorities above 2.1 billion. There remain the loss of furniture and machinery, the damage to the coal mines in the transport system, and many other minor items. But these losses, however serious, cannot be reckoned in values by hundreds of millions of dollars in respect of so small a part of France. In short, it will be difficult to establish a bill exceeding $2.5 billion for physical and material damage in the occupied and devastated areas of northern France. I am confirmed in this estimate by the opinion of M. René Poupin, the author of the most comprehensive and scientific estimate of the pre-war wealth of France, which I did not come across until after my own figure had been arrived at. This authority estimates the material losses of the invaded regions at from two billion to three billion ten to fifteen million francs, between which my own figure falls halfway. Nevertheless, M. Dubois, speaking on behalf of the budget commission of the Chamber, has given the figure of thirteen billion dollars sixty five million francs as a minimum, without counting war levies, losses at sea, the roads, or the loss of public monuments. And M. Loshur, the Minister of Industrial Reconstruction, stated before the Senate, on the 17th of February, 1919, that the reconstruction of the devastated regions would involve an expenditure of 15 billion dollars, 75 million francs, more than double M. Poupin's estimate of the entire wealth of their inhabitants. But then, at that time, M. Loshur was taking a prominent part in advocating the claims of France before the peace conference, and, like others, may have found strict veracity inconsistent with the demands of patriotism. The figure discussed so far is not, however, the totality of the French claims. There remain, in particular, levies and requisitions on the occupied areas, and the losses of the French mercantile marine at sea from the attacks of German cruisers and submarines. Probably a billion dollars would be ample to cover all such claims, but to be on the safe side, we will somewhat arbitrarily make an addition to the French claim of $1.5 on all heads bringing it to four billion dollars in all the statements of m dubois and m Lochure were made in the early spring of nineteen nineteen a speech delivered by m Klotz before the french chamber six months later september fifth nineteen nineteen was less excusable in this speech the french minister of finance estimated the total french claims for damage to property presumably inclusive of losses at sea etc but apart from pensions and allowances at twenty six point eight billion dollars or more than six times my estimate. Even if my figure proves erroneous, M. Klotz's can never have been justified. So grave has been the deception practiced on the French people by their ministers, that when the inevitable enlightenment comes, as it soon must, both as to their own claims and as to Germany's capacity to meet them, the repercussions will strike at more than M. Klotz, and may even involve the order of government and society for which he stands. British claims on the present basis would be practically limited to losses by sea, losses of hulls and losses of cargoes. Claims would lie, of course, for damage to civilian property in air raids and by bombardment from the sea. But in relation to such figures as we are now dealing with, the money value involved is insignificant. $25 million might cover them all, and $50 million would certainly do so. The British mercantile vessels lost by enemy action, excluding fishing vessels, numbered 2,479 with an aggregate of 7.75 million tons gross. There is room for considerable divergence of opinion as to the proper rate to take for replacement cost. At the figure of $150 per gross ton, which with the rapid growth of shipbuilding may soon be too high, but can be replaced by any other which better authorities may prefer, the aggregate claim is $1.15 billion. To this must be added the loss of cargoes, the loss of which is almost entirely a matter of guesswork. An estimate of $200 per ton of shipping lost may be as good an approximation as is possible. That is to say, $1.55 billion, making $2.7 billion altogether. In addition to this, of $150 million to cover air raids, bombardments, claims of interned civilians, and miscellaneous items of every description, should be more than sufficient, making a total claim for Great Britain of $2.85 billion, it is surprising perhaps that the money value of great britain's claim should be so little short of that of france and actually in excess of that of belgium but measured either by pecuniary loss or real loss to the economic power of the country the injury to her mercantile marine was enormous there remain the claims of italy serbia and romania for damage by invasion and of these and other countries as for example greece for losses at sea i will assume for the present argument that these claims rank against germany even when they are directly caused not by her, but by her allies, but that it is not proposed to enter any such claims on behalf of Russia. Italy's losses by invasion and at sea cannot be very heavy, and a figure of from $250 million to $500 million would be fully adequate to cover them. The losses of Serbia, although from a human point of view her sufferings were the greatest of all, are not measured pecuniarily by very great figures, on account of her low economic development dr stamp quotes an estimate by the italian statistician maroi who puts the national wealth of serbia at two point four billion dollars or five hundred and twenty five dollars per head and the greater part of this would be represented by land which has sustained no permanent damage in view of the very inadequate data for guessing at more than the general magnitude of the legitimate claims of this group of countries i prefer to make one guess rather than several and to put the figure for the whole group at the round sum of one billion two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. We are left finally with the following Belgium two point five billion dollars France four billion dollars Great Britain two point eight five billion other Allies one billion two hundred and fifty million total ten point six billion. I need not impress on the reader that there is much guesswork in the above, and the figure for France in particular is likely to be criticized. But I feel some confidence that the general magnitude, as distinct from the precise figures, is not hopelessly erroneous, and this may be expressed by the statement that a claim against Germany, based on the interpretation of the pre-armistice engagements of the Allied powers which is adopted above, would assuredly be found to exceed $8 billion and to fall short of $15 billion. This is the amount of the claim which we were entitled to present to the enemy. For reasons which will appear more fully later on, I believe that it would have been a wise and just act to have asked the German government at the peace negotiations to agree to a sum of $10 billion in final settlement, without further examination of particulars. This would have provided an immediate and certain solution, and would have required from Germany a sum which, if she were granted certain indulgences, it might not have proved entirely impossible for her to pay. This sum should have been divided up amongst the Allies themselves on a basis of need and general equity. But the question was not settled on its merits. End of Chapter Five, Part One. Undertakings given prior to the peace negotiations. Recording by Graham McMillan, San Diego, California.